folks, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. Simon Foster is the guy that I co-host this with. Simon, can I ask you a question about a glorious period of, let's say, 1993, 94 thereabouts? You remember that time? Yeah, let's do let's do that. Hello, everyone. Hello, Dan. I'm happy to talk about the 90s. I was married occasionally then, and um, I'm happy to talk about it. Okay, well, look, here's the thing. So I remember that time period of my life as being, like looking out in a cultural sort of landscape around, that's when grunge music was really a thing. People were talking about Kurt Cobain oh, sure. and the Seattle sound. And along with that, if you knew anyone who was into, like, you know, little bit of sort of goth culture or just anything that's sort of slightly arty alternative you'd know about a vertigo comic book called sandman and everybody was reading that thing back in the day do you remember this yes i do remember it i wasn't a comic book guy i had goth friends and i do vividly recall the impact that sandman this and sandman this this was all before hashtags but if there would had been hashtags it would have been hashtag sandman everywhere but yeah i do recall it yeah it was one of these sort of real crossover cultural things where people who weren't really traditional comic book readers had really glommed onto the sandman comic book series we're reading it in collected forms primarily but some people got a bit adventurous and were reading it in floppies for first time I'd ever heard the name Neil Gaiman. That, that, that's yeah. where I know him from. Oh, that was the first. Look, I mean, that was definitely the case for most people. Like he'd done some, yeah. maybe like 2000 AD or something like that. But like Sandman was definitely the thing that broke him. But mm. why I ask is because at the moment there's a new Netflix series based on the Sandman comic book series, and it's particularly notable because there's been a number of efforts to try to get it to screen. But it just struck me. I was talking to a colleague of mine who's a former goth from back in the day. And I said, hey, you remember like the Sandman comics? He's like, yeah, absolutely. And so he was more than across it because that was his cultural circles at the time. But then sitting across from us on the other side of the cubicle was our, let's say she's about like 27, 28 years old colleague. Okay. okay, and like like we were, like we were back in the nineties. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speak for yourself. I was, I was, you know, a little bit on the younger teen side of things back then. Uh, but like, it was just kind of interesting, sort of this cultural gap that exists in regards to Sandman, where it was just so pervasively cross-cultural in a way that I don't think we've really seen from comics outside of superhero stuff, like pretty much ever. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it was just kind of fascinating that she was unaware of Sandman, but she'd certainly seen a Netflix show at this point and. It's kind of a bit interesting. Did your did did your aged gothic aged goth friend dabble in the the Netflix show? Has he got an opinion on? Oh, uh, look, he wasn't super into it. But anyway, we're going to talk about that and a few more things on the podcast this week. This is screen watching, and we're going to play a bit of a theme song. We'll come back on the other side with some reviews and Sandman. This is not like TV only battle. Television, teacher, mother, secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. This is Screen Watching. On the podcast, we do some reviews. We talk about some things that are just culturally out there. And then we do some more stuff. I don't know. I'll read the run sheet later and find out. But I'm joined by Simon yeah. Foster. Simon, I think you will agree... This week on the show, we've got some fairly big titles. So we are going to talk about The Sandman. We're not doing a review for it. And I think that'll come clear as to why when we start talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm going to talk on the show this week about Five Days at Memorial, which is a new Apple TV Plus series, which it's a bit of an under-the-radar show. But the mm. thing about this is eating your vegetables, but they're pretty good vegetables. So I'm going to talk about that. This is good. And also the TV remake of A League of Their Own. 
And I'll be talking about The Princess, which is a new documentary about Princess Diana, which is in limited release as we speak. And I'll also be looking at, nope, the new Jordan Peele film, which is in wide release everywhere, one of the most anticipated films of this half of the year. So, uh, And interestingly enough, I don't know anything about Five Days at Memorial and certainly haven't seen A League of Their Own, and I think you've not seen The Princess or Nope. So we're coming at it from very individual perspectives this week. Yeah, but I have chased people down through tunnel systems before, so I think I kind of get the idea of The Princess. Yeah, yeah, you do. Nice reference there. I saw what you did. Yeah. All right, let's talk movies okay. and TV. Okay, like candles in the wind, we've got some reviews coming up. It stinks. Simon, I'm going to kick things off by talking about the thing that nobody's heard of, which is always the worst way to start a podcast like this. But I am going to talk about Five Days at Memorial. We are getting all of these patients out of here. We are nurses and we're going to get it done. we don't get left behind we have to be realistic about the situation there is nothing else to do for them except to make them comfortable so what are we talking about true crime is mostly exploitative there's something about the based on the true story tag to me that just doesn't really add any dramatic heft it crassly set up victims real world tragedies as little more than entertainment for viewers well-told fiction, however, can provide more of an insight into the truth than a story that true crime ever can. There's a new Apple TV Plus series that explores a real-world event which saw medical patients die, but it's not really a crime investigation. The focus of the show is Memorial Hospital in New Orleans. When Hurricane Katrina hit back in late August of 2005, this was a hospital that did not have an emergency evacuation plan in how to deal with flooding. In the building, there were 2,000 medical staff and patients, and they had rising floodwaters and looters outside, a flooded basement which cutted out the power to the backup generators, and they had a barely functional helicopter pad, which supporting the very limited air support the hospital was able to receive. Long story short, things were not good in that hospital. Not at all. Over the course of five increasingly hellish days, doctors had to make difficult choices based on who they believed should live or die, prioritising health and evacuations. Multiple patients were euthanised. Now, a couple of years ago, the plan was for the second season of the TV show American Crime Story, and you remember that as a show that had People vs. O.J. Simpson as its first season. The plan was for that show to focus on this incident. It was reported in Sherry Fink's best-selling book, Five Days in Memorial. Now, there's an Entertainment Weekly critic, Christine uh, Kirsten Baldwin, who said in her review for this show, Not only was no one ever convicted of wrongdoing, but putting the word crime in the title indicates a certain level of clarity around the events in question and perhaps the comfort of a black and white outcome. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to call out in a review, because it's exactly the reason why it doesn't work as an American crime story, and why I actually thought this was such a compelling program. The crucial thing to know about the series is that at no point is there really a crime. There's no judgment that's placed on the behaviour of any of the doctors. To my mind, that's what's so appealing about this series. It's a brutally honest depiction of the very difficult situation that the doctors and hospital administrators found themselves in, but it does not have an overall thesis statement which weighs above the story. Now, the casting for this show is impeccable. You got the two standouts being the biggest name actors in the show. You got Cherry Jones, who's wonderful as always, and she plays a hospital administrator who's left in charge of emergency management who realizes far too late that her guidebook provides no information what to do for this emergency. And then there's Vera Farmiga, who plays Dr. Anna Powell. 
She's the doctor at the sense of some pretty serious allegations about patients who were not evacuated from the hospital. What happened there and did she engage in actions that violated her ethical duties to the patients or did her actions support those ethics to the maximum degree? The bulk of the episodes in the series are written by 12 Years a Slave Academy Award winning screenwriter John Ridley, who's also credited as directing several episodes, along with former Lost co-showrunner Carlson Coos, who wrote and directed several episodes also. This is a heavy, 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 very human drama that I found thoroughly rewarding. It isn't entertaining TV, but it is very watchable. It's an easy watch, difficult watch, but easy. And it speaks to the ability of people who are able to make some very tough decisions in the face of some of the most extreme adversity. Not seen as responsible in the series, however, is the US federal government who failed to send in support to rescue its citizens who were at the mercy of this weather event. There was a crime that took place over this week. It just wasn't necessarily at the hospital. This sounds like a fantastic show. And um, I'm concerned that given someone whose life it is to uh, know what's coming out on film and television, I had not heard of this. You know what's interesting? I did see Robert Pine's face turn up in mm. uh, some of my social feeds and, and, and I was wondering why he's back in the scene, not just because he's Chris Pine's father but and, and the uh, commanding officer from Chips all those years ago, but he's in this terrific new series on Apple TV. So um, I'm very excited about, about tuning into this now that you've given it the, the rave you have. And um, these... Um, so, so if, if you're saying it's not based on true life, it's a fictional account. I'm, no, no, sorry. Of- I, I, I misspoke a little bit. I was really just trying to get to the fact that I don't like true crime stories. I, yeah, I, I, I think yeah, I actually find them genuinely really offensive. But, mm. and mostly because I think that anything that you're trying to accomplish in a true crime story, you can generally accomplish by telling a fictionalized account of it. And it could be a romantic cleft sort of an approach where you're layering a fictional story over a real one. Like, that's okay. I don't really mind that so much. But I just find there's something really gross about mining people's real-life tragedies for our entertainment. Yep. I just think that's horrendous. Sure. But there are ways to do it in fiction in a way that I think is probably actually more powerful than a based on a true-life crime story. But what I just think is interesting in this is that it's not actually a crime story and they're not actually using the tragedy for our entertainment. It really is laying out pretty simply, this is what happened. We're not laying judgments on anyone. And that's where the entertainment factor usually comes in for this, where the audience are on side going, oh, that Dr. Death, he's a, you know, he's a cad. Like there's none of that sort of finger waving taking place. This is all very much just showing this is the tragedy that happened. These are some of the decisions that were made. This is the investigation that took place later. And the show itself doesn't lay any blame one way or another, nor does it invite the audience to. Five Days at Memorial is on Apple Plus TV. Can we tune into it now? Has it already hit our screens? Uh, no. So, well, by the time people hear this podcast, it'll be, you know, hours away. It'll so the first there. three episodes drop on the 12th of August. Tomorrow. That sounds like must-see TV, and I'll be tuning into Five Days at Memorial. If I'm not tuning into Five Days at Memorial, I might head back and see Nope. That's big. And it's required to be a player. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Holy hell. 
After drilling deep into society's dark soul with his racially incendiary Get Out and middle-class nightmare Us, Jordan Peele's latest twisty mystery thriller Nope is a walk on the wackier side of pop culture where that legion of right-minded people who, who utterly accept that mysterious flying entities populate our skies exist, of which I am loudly and proudly one, I should say. Nerd. It takes pl- <laughs> It takes place... On a relatively remote ranch in the dusty Californian hills, far enough from Hollywood not to draw military attention when the space people come calling, but close enough for the increasingly depressed OJ, played by Daniel Kaluuya from Get Out, and his hyper-irresponsible sister Emerald, Kiki Palmer, to run Haywood's Hollywood Horses, a family business supplying four-legged cast members to the production sector. Now, OJ is struggling to keep Haywood's afloat, its potential demise symbolic of the lessening of in-camera magic and over-reliance on effects fakery. They are making some quick cash supplying a nearby Western theme park called Jupiter's Claim run by ex-90s child star Ricky Park, Stephen Ewan, um, mostly famous for having survived a vicious and fatal onset rampage by his Chimpanese co-star Gordy, rendered, somewhat ironically, in perfectly terrifying CGI. Now, Jordan Peele goes there in a series of bait-and-switch flashbacks, which are both terrifying and oblique. Part of his appeal as a filmmaker is in the way he offers up potential clues as to what the hell might be unfolding only to rug pull whole sequences out from under his audience well into the film's first half we finally get some serious ufo moments the likes of which stargazers like me wait years and years for hollywood to tackle there's a cloud in the sky that never moves there's coins keys and trinkets falling randomly from above there's waves of power outages every time a shadow looms overhead and there's the disappearance of 40 people in a split second that barely rates a further mention all of which is in the trailer i don't want to spoil too much and i won't go into too much more spoiling here actually i will in one very tummy tightening sequence oj finds himself in a moonlit stable as small figures loom out of dark shadowy corners kind of reminding you of the doppelgangers in us uh, but again it's a carpet pool moment peels He's not at that self-referential stage of his career like M. Night Shyamalan is, well, not yet anyway. What he does reference all through this film is his love of cinema and primetime TV. In one beautifully played scene, uh, Stephen Ewan recounts the horrors of his bloody sitcom experience as it played out in the Saturday Night Live skit that followed, referencing all the great Saturday Night Live players from that period. Um, so what we ultimately get with Nope is a very mysterious movie as challenging for the mass audience as Hollywood dares get. It's a character-driven, slow-burn story, the kind only entrusted to a director batting two-for-two two commercially and who has taught his audience that they, if they expect the unexpected, he'll promise to take you for that ride. If Nope probably lacks the precision storytelling and clarity of purpose that Get Out displayed, it also makes more assured use of visual clues and narrative puzzles than us did. And it all pays off in this wild ride of a denouement filled with humour and spectacle uh, that delivers in the moment, but had me reflecting upon for hours afterwards. Um, This is really compelling American filmmaking and kind of posits Jordan Peele as arguably the most interesting mainstream filmmaker currently working in, in Hollywood. So Nope is a, is a must-see for me, and it's in wide release everywhere. Yeah, like all the hardcore always, uh, sorry, uh, screen-watching fans out there, like he did try to say Dunyamon, and, you know, people were drinking. 
I just went to the denouement. Denouement, mate. Australian denouement. Denouement. Um, yeah, and, and and boy, just this film. Yeah, and it it tells its story at a very leisurely pace, um, which is a brave choice for a, a major studio to let a filmmaker do. But he's in such control of that storytelling that you're never not fully compelled by by what's going on. Up on the screen. What I like about the Jordan Peele approach, uh, like obviously he's very much got a um, social progressive interest in his storytelling generally. I don't know how much of that's really on display in this film. But just from a story mechanic standpoint, I enjoy that his films always have surprises to be found in them, but they're never really just based around the plot twist. It's not like an M. Night Shyamalan Mm. film where you're just trying to work out like when's that twist going to come and when does everything change? It's never really quite like that. It really is a series of revelations that open the story up rather than just something which is like that single moment where if you blink and miss it, it'll be like, wait, what just happened? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And there's half a dozen in this film um, that indicate that that's his favoured sort of ploy as a, as a filmmaker and what he likes to do. It, it so far, it hasn't got gimmicky. He's, I, for me, someone like Christopher Nolan has maybe crossed the jumped the shark a little bit on his non-linear storytelling, and, and Dunkirk was where I jumped off the the um, the Nolan train. But Jordan Peele hasn't reached that stage yet, and he does some fantastic work. Even if in the end they don't really come to mean anything, there's stuff in this film that just makes it compelling to watch, and sort of aids the overall mood and tension of the of the story as a whole so uh, which i think is really clever filmmaking yeah i got off the nolan train at the same time you did but then i realized that i don't need an opal card or a go-kart or anything to get back on the train i could just have my credit card and off i went <laughs> yeah so when's nolan oppenheimer we've got our next nolan fix i guess that's yeah. still a, a year away so. hey can i talk all right can I t- oh sorry that movie that you were just talking about the nope is playing mm. cinemas now i'm led to believe Started as we recorded, started today, and it is everywhere. It's one of the big, and I think as as I found out this morning, uh, just crossed over the hundred million mark, which I think is real testament to the audience's ability to stay with the film and go back a couple of times for the film. There's um there's a lot in there to digest. Yeah, I think the film's playing just slightly under what us was, which is a bit disappointing. But even so, yeah, uh, definitely keen on a film. I'm keen to check out now, Simon. I want to move on to talk about a league of their own. There's another one on Tuesday. Tuesday's too late, sir! Do in the feature film, A League of Their Own, Tom Hanks told us there's no crying in baseball, but at least that's a more enjoyable emotion than I felt while watching the new TV series adaptation of the film. That emotion was extreme boredom as I struggled to reach the end of the first episode. Intellectually, I'm on board with A League of Their Own. The story of an all-female baseball league team playing to keep the national pastime alive while ma- white male ball players were out at war, that's a good story. And there are stories that are very much worthy of deeper exploration than a fe- feature film provided, and that's certainly the case here. Further to that, you got the opportunity to use the moment that we're in to tell a story of women who didn't conform to heteronormative expectations of what it means to be a woman, and that's an interesting approach to the story, and I'm totally there for that. 
All of that stimulates me as someone who appreciates honest storytelling that lets characters exhibit their humanity. The difficult that I, difficulty that I, as a viewer, had was that there's just nothing in the script, nothing in the performances that I found especially compelling here. Compounding the problem is how anachronistic much of it felt, with dialogue and the openness to sexuality that felt forced to me as a viewer. If honesty is what we're looking for, the layering in of modern phrases and attitudes about sex robbed the series of an ability to connect with it. As with the movie, the series is focused on a wannabe ball player whose husband's off at war. She joins the league in his absence, leaving behind a life on the farm to pursue her passion. The difference with the TV series is that our protagonist isn't just looking to baseball as her passion, she's also got a hidden interest in other women. Oh, the scandal of it all. Now, worth noting is that the movie and the TV show, they both follow the Rockford Peaches as a team, but the characters are both different in the TV show to the movie, and neither of them are based on the real-life players from the actual team. Some viewers, they're going to connect with the themes of the show far more than I did, and while I simply didn't connect with the cast at all, which is led by Broad City's Abby Jacobson, who's also a co-creator of the show, but look, this one just wasn't really for me at all. I wanted to say batter up. Um, as a baseball fan, as a fan of the original movie, I was sort of tracking this, and as a fan of Abby Jacobson, I'm, I'm keen. I'm a little concerned that uh, her producing partner on this, Will Graham, has a very checkered history. My God, he's directed one episode of Movie 43 a decade oh. ago. That's pretty tough. Oh, God, I can <laughs> smell it from here. <laughs> he did have um, major production credits on Mozart in the Jungle, which was well-liked by a lot of critics, but there's a lot of stuff here that I've never heard of, um, a lot of Onion News Network stuff. So um, I'm hoping it's more Abby Jacobson than Will Graham, uh, but by all accounts. Is there much baseball action? That might get me to tune in. You know I love my baseball. Well, maybe. I prefer maybe more, what's his name, Will Graham? Or is that the guy from yeah. uh, Hannibal? No, that's no, no. Will Graham's the other is the show is the other showrunner, the other producer of this with with Abby. Okay, so there's two Will Grahams in the world. How exciting! <laughs> uh, look, I mean, my issue with uh, like I don't know, I'm not a big Abby Jacobson fan to be completely honest, but you know, okay. it's fine, whatever. All right, so this is this is doing tough. It's on Prime, Amazon Prime Video as we yeah. Look, speak. and I will say I've read a couple of reviews of it since I saw it, and they're very much mixed. There's some people who kind of feel the same way I did. Others have kind of bought entirely into it. So as I said, I think that these are characters and a situation that some people will naturally just find a connection to in a way that if you don't have that connection, I think it's very flat on the screen. Okay. Well, it's a shame because the film certainly has a wonderful legacy and is much loved across the but board. He, here's so, the thing right. with the film, because I did rewatch the film, I don't know, about four or five months ago, I think. Uh, it was definitely not too long ago. Uh, like that film, it does feel a little bit false in how heteronormative that film is. Like the one thing this TV series does really quite well is points out that you've got these women who some of them identify as, you know, being interested in other ladies, but then there's others who just don't really conform to the idea of what a woman's supposed to look and feel like. And while they sort of touch upon that, like it's certainly not really to any sort of meaningful level within that film. It really is just a story about some, you know, good old gals getting out there and playing some baseball with like a bit of antipathy from some of the men around. But I don't know, broadly, I just don't think it really touched upon some of the more interesting things this show is willing to embrace. It's just a shame the show isn't a bit more interesting the way it does it. All right. 
It's called A League of Their Own. It's on Amazon Prime as we speak. In limited release right now is another documentary about uh, Princess Diana called The Princess. The prince realises that he's taking second place. By the way. A hollow and tormented marriage are giving the British media and its public little else to talk about. Just give me one question, right? Oh. She's been pushed from the word go. It's the media that's causing the problems. Leave them alone. Lady Diana. She's been through the worst that can be thrown at her. I think we've got an unhealthy obsession. Now, Simon, this is unconnected to the Disney Plus movie from about two months ago. Yes, it is, which caught you off guard earlier this week. It is unconnected to the Disney Plus movie, which I've watched and is pretty terrible. No, this is uh, very much a retrospective of the life of Princess Diana, all done using archival footage taken from uh, sources as vast as video cameras of the day, closed-circuit TV, obviously the news footage of the time. Um, While you may think we know all we need to know about Diana, what this does is puts it in a a more contemporary context. We now understand... um, what a terrible burden on her and her children, uh, the royal protocols um, that Prince Charles and the Queen were on her life, and doubled down on that, the enormous um, war waged against her by certain sections of the British press, and to fuel that, the paparazzi in general. So once again, that also, that may all sound familiar, but what this documentary does is uh, paint a picture of a, a young woman who was in love um, and blinded by that love and blinded over and over again by the role that she had taken on in, in British society and in British royalty um, and more, maybe more profoundly what she was able to do with it uh, in terms of the charity work she did, the international travel she did to help uh, those less fortunate than her um, that she was continually doing right up until her her very sad passing. So um, I'm no royalist. I'd be happy to go uh, Republican in this country, but I think that Princess Diana um, exists in a, a world and leaves a legacy beyond that and this this documentary captures it it calls it's called the princess and it's in limited release around the country yeah look i've got zero interest in this whatsoever but we it's it's i'm i'm always fascinated sometimes our age gap comes up and i'm interested to know what princess diana represented to you as someone who was probably very young when that was all happening as opposed to me who was kind of soaking up the, the the entirety of the Princess Diana, as he tried. Like when she passed, like the only real connection that I had to her was that she'd been a presence in my life for years as a constant presence in like your Woman's Day magazines and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I kind of remember it, but it's more just from the tail end post, uh, like Marries Prince Charles sort of fit, like era of her life. More the scandal than the actual. See, yeah. I've, got, I've, I've got vivid memories. Um, of the wedding, of the early days of the romance. That was when I was sort of soaking up as much television and and, um, media as I could and and the impact that she had in a pre-internet age, of course, when everything was about what was happening on front of us on the television and in the newspapers. Um, 
was was all we had. So uh, yeah, it, it, this one was a little bit heartbreaking. It was a little bit sad. It recalled a moment in history when this amazing woman came along, did incredible things despite much of her society working hard against her and then left us far too soon. Yeah, see, I don't know. I just find most of the roles more interesting in concept than I do like sitting down to actually watch any of this nonsense. <laughs> That's called The Princess. It's in limited release. And I should also point out very quickly that also in limited release, and I'm bummed that I didn't get to watch the screen and link. I, I've had this for like two months. It's called The Conference. This is a World War II drama. It's about what the German hierarchy at the time in 1942 referred to as a meeting followed by breakfast. Now, that meeting was, in fact, the Wansi Conference or the Wansi Conference, um, and it was where the heads of the Gestapo all gathered together to nut out the agenda that would become known as the final solution to the Jewish question. This is, by all accounts, a chilling film, um, one made by Germans, by German filmmaker and German actors, uh, and the reports are that it's an ice. One reviewer called it an ice cold masterpiece. So I'm keen to see this film. It's in limited release called The Conference. So, Simon, earlier this week you sent me a message saying, Dan, nope's out this week. I want to talk about UFOs and aliens and shit. Yes. And I said, sure. What are we going to talk about specifically? And you said, I'll get back to you. And then you never did. But I found a note in a rundown about 15 minutes ago, which explained what we're talking about here. So, Simon, what are we talking about here as I quickly try to scramble something together for this segment? Sure, understand. I'm happy to take this one, brother. Uh, you know that I am an absolute UFO nut. I've just backed it up with my review of Nope. Um I'm calling this one UFOs and Aliens, They Walk Among Us. Film and TV has pondered the existence of extraterrestrial life since cameras began rolling. With Nope reworking the alien experience for a new generation, we fill this week's middle bit with the best and maybe worst of aliens and UFO lore on our big and small screen. It's been a go-to for filmmakers and storytellers forever, from when they were back-painting on the side of caves to the very biggest budgeted of all films. So um, I'm happy to talk about UFOs and aliens on screens everywhere. Are you, you're a UFO person, aren't you? Oh, look, I mean, I enjoy things across all sorts of genre. Like, I don't mind a UFO story here and there. Look, we can't. We certainly can't deny that, that you know, I'm coming from a point of my favourite movie of all time being Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So this is a movie that deeply impacted me, obviously left some kind of effect on me because I've been nuts about the UFO phenomenon. And over the last few years where documentaries and podcasts have been thrown up in my face everywhere I turn about this topic, you've got to pick your material very carefully because there's some real crazies out there. Okay, um, well, can I, can I ask this question? If, yes. Okay, so without doing a Simon Foster and naming every movie that's ever been made... If I was to ask you, what is one good underrated movie that's about aliens and UFO culture, what would you pick? Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, I am going to say The Vast of Night. Okay. That was an Amazon Prime film from about two to three years ago, which is set in the 1950s in, is it in New Mexico? Yes, it is. It's very near to a certain uh, famous UFO uh, vicinity. 
if you know what I mean. Roswell. Um, and yeah, The Vast of Night is this extraordinarily well-made, very excitingly told story of a small town population who get caught up in what may or may not be um, visitations in the night. And it is just extraordinarily well-directed. Um, and so a lot of people don't know about The Vast of Night. It came out of the film festival circuit but was picked up very early on by Amazon and went straight to the small screen. And I have always wanted to program it as part of my festival because I'd love to see the way this film looks on the big screen. Um it's pretty so, good. Yes. Like I, I think the first like 30, 40 minutes of it are incredibly compelling and then it loses yeah. puff a little bit, but like it's it's good. Yeah, it op- and and it it holds a special place for me because it was one of, I think it was one of the very first things we reviewed on this on this podcast or, or talked about on the podcast, but yeah, it's possible. It's, it's um it opens with this amazing tracking shot which goes on for like 6 or 7 minutes, which is quite beautiful. Um I I you know, obviously, aliens have been part of film culture for a long time. You can't talk about this sort of stuff without talking about ET or The Abyss or Starman. Um, Signs was the other film. Signs is a movie, an M Night Shyamalan movie that a lot of people are comparing Nope to and, and favorably to. If you just want to talk about the alien abduction experience, do watch. Uh, the adaptation of Whitley Stryber's book Communion. The film stars Christopher Walken. It is a nutty film, but it is a compelling film to watch. And Mila Jovovich made a movie called The Fourth Kind, which also looked at alien abduction, which um, did so in a, in a, in a pretty, ter- pretty terrifying way. Uh, in 1975, a TV movie called The UFO Incident was made. It told the, told the story of Betty and Barney Hill, who were two of the earliest alien abductee cases. It starred James L. Jones and Estelle Parsons. And of all the crazy documentaries you might be able to find on your streaming platforms, arguably the best of them is called The Phenomenon from a couple of years ago, which took a very serious look at the New York Times article, which exposed all the UAP footage that the Navy had released and was about to release at the time. So that's my choice for the best of the UFO films. And I can't go without mentioning the great old TV series UFO, um, which had the shadow organization defending Earth from extraterrestrial threats. That was a Jerry Anderson, Sylvia Anderson film. They put all their Thunderbird dollars into UFOs and it didn't quite pay off, but it had a great lead performance by Ed Bishop, who you may remember with the silver hair and the fringe cut across there and just terrific bit of television. I don't. So really, you'd never seen UFO? I've never seen the show. No. Oh my god, it's wonderful! I've got to send you some links. I'll put something up on the Facebook page. Yeah, like I'm certainly aware of the program. I just hadn't seen it. Okay, okay so I've spent a lot of time this last week thinking about this as a topic, Simon. <laughs> so much time this week. Okay, so when I was thinking about the best of best of them, like I figured I could very much do the obvious thing and talk about Close Encounters or Starman or any of that sort of thing. Uh-huh. It, if I was going to pick out two of like the obvious things, I'd say the ones that probably mean the most to me is the movie Arrival, which sure. I really got like a uh, pretty sort of uh, major kick out of. What I liked about that one is very much about communication, which is something I'm very interested in. And so that's films all just about communicating uh, both, you know, uh, creature to creature as well as uh, like an emotional communication of loss, which I think is kind of an interesting sub theme throughout that. Um, but then the other big film that I liked was Contact with one Jodie Foster. That film, you know, I think it's just the bee's knees. I'm all yeah. for that. But when I was thinking about, like, this as a genre, I started thinking about, like, just the not necessarily great movies, but definitely the things that just came to mind immediately for me. So, sure. like, those pop cultural things which are just indelibly part of me. Yep. So, I started my list with something which I think is legitimately very good. 
and is absolutely amongst there with the best of them, which is an episode of The X-Files called Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Yes. And this is brilliant in that it takes... Um, you mentioned uh, Barney and um, Mrs. Hill. Betty and Barney, yep. Betty and Barney. The thing with them is that they were amongst the first in sort of UFO lore to be hypnotized and to be able to present their story. But what they do with their story is that... Um, not these, but, you know, in terms of the world, when we've heard the story and what they sort of revealed under hypnosis, is that there's so many other things that could have happened in their lives that have contributed to that. So there's this idea that they could have pulled episodes of the Twilight Zone and grabbed parts of that and sort of mixed it into the mythology that they're telling. Uh, But also it was partly um, Barney Hill was pulling bits about, like, uh, World War II and the... um, mass genocide of Jewish people being drawn into it and like it was a sort of medical um, like aspect of it all and it's just kind of pulling from the world and pulling it together. What's fun about this X-Files episode is it kind of does the same thing and it really explores the way that people's mind and memory are shaped by all these things around and what they believe is a story of violation and further to that, the way that people create a context to be able to just wave away anything that's like slightly uncomfortable about the reality of what people are believing happened to them. So it's sort of things like, oh, well, Betty and Barney Hill, one of the problems with them was that they were too consistent with their story. Okay, but then you hear about other people who had sort of, you know, just odd aspects to their, like, UFO encounter story. So, Jose Chung's From Outer Space kind of comes up with reasons to why that's the case. And it just explores it in a really funny, witty, but also really poignant way. It's a really great hour of TV. It really is. And and the X-Files guys, Chris Carter and the team took on, you know, alien lore and alien culture, obviously quite a bit in the show, but always did it from a an informed um, but occasionally irreverent point of view, which was which was wonderful. Yeah, anyway, the rest of my list are just like the dumb things that I watched as a kid that I think about all the time in terms of- We're going to be here a while, folks. folks. Settle in. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start with the greatest of them all, Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> Terrible movie, but I saw it as like it came out in, say, 1986-ish, yeah. and I was a six-year-old. Like, this was my jam entirely. You know what? It 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 always felt like a terrible movie to me. I've never watched it. I've never seen Flight of the Navigator. Even through the whole VHS years, it was everywhere, and yeah, I've just never got around to it because it had that kind of a stink about it. Yeah, it's just a kid's VHS film. Like, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I-, I loved it as a kid. Mac and Me, terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> loved it as a kid. Loved it. <laughs> I've got if that anything- on my worst of. Some of the worst movies ever made are alien films, and, and I've got a couple more, and Mac of Me was, was definitely on the list. It is an Look- awful movie. Completely paid for and sponsored by McDonald's. Yep. Um, which is extraordinary as a way of cashing in on the, the whole E.T. phenomenon that was happening at the time. This film was watched so much in my household as a kid, oh, I would God. dare suggest that I've got fonder memories of this than E.T., which I've seen maybe once in my life. Oh, my God. It's and such a bad, bad film. Two absolute classic uh, TV series, Mork and Mindy starring the great Robin Williams and the even greater Pam Dorber. Cha-ching. Yep, you're absolutely right. Yep. Good call. Uh, and then also a little TV series called Alf. <laughs> Alien life form. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, I think it's kind of just a bit rude that they never refer to him by his actual alien name. Instead, it's always the name that us as humans gave him, which he seems to respond to. 
What's his um actual? Oh, name? Simon. Jerry. How was dare it Jerry? You? Look, as we all know from the animated series Alf, Alf the animated series, <laughs> his name was Gordon Shumway. Gordon Shumway, of course it was. Yes, I did know that. And there's something very offensive about the fact that the viewers all call him Alf, the um, Tanner family, they all call him Alf. But his name's not Alf, it's Gordon Shumway, which should show some respect. It should be Mr. Shumway. The show should have been called Mr. Shumway. No, it shouldn't um, we can't. We can't let this middle bit go without mentioning uh, that the UFO slash alien... Uh, genre has also offered up Plan 9 from Outer Space and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. So two of arguably the worst films ever made. Actually, Plan 9's not that bad. Um, but well-played alien UFO genre. You managed to get some bad films in there as well. So that was the middle bit. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to stop myself from criticising your choices just then. <laughs> Why, well, big fan of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, are we? Uh, no, I mean, just like talking about those two in terms of bad movies, it's kind of like saying, have you ever heard of the Beatles before? It's like, you know, let's just pick oh, the most yeah, obvious course, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, you're right. Yeah. It's shooting fish in a barrel when you talk about those two films. <laughs> you're right. And I, yeah. I saw Plan 9 from Outer Space at, at the on the big screen at a, at a retro screening once, and I didn't hate it. It's completely fine. Oh, look, I wouldn't say it's completely fine, but, you know, there's far more egregious, terrible things. Like, it's not oh. boring. Absolutely. There like, I, don't, I don't believe there's such a thing as bad movies. I think there's boring movies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the hardest bad movie I ever have trouble watching is a bad comedy. If it's a bad action movie, at least something explodes. Or if it's a bad space movie, there'll be laser beams. And But when there's no laughs in a comedy um, or, or everything is just totally at odds with what I think is funny and a comedy doesn't work for me. They, they really are the worst movies. The Dictator with Sasha Baron Cohen and the Russell oh, that- Brand remake of Arthur were two of just the worst oh. movie-going experiences of my life. Yeah, no, I totally buy into that. I'm kind of amazed that we made it through that entire segment without talking about Under the Skin. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. Hey, Simon Foster, what else have you been watching lately? Well, I had a tubey deep dive this week. I, I really did go to extraordinary lengths not to do any work on my film festival just to give myself a break from it. So I went into a tubey deep dive and I stumbled across a film which I probably knew of at some point. The, the poster looked like a familiar VHS cover to me, but I'd forgotten it. It was called The Final Terror, which is a terrible name for a film. It starred a very young, very beautiful Rachel Ward. Oh, sorry, is very- this... Sorry, is this Fortress star Rachel Ward from the HBO TV movie Suddenly a Show in Outback? As Shot in a Cave, uh, starring Rachel Ward. Yes, exactly. It Can I just say, I I found that on YouTube during the week and I (laughs) fast-forwarded through the scene that gave me severe memory burn as a young man and I watched that scene. I'm like, yeah, I totally get why. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Um, it started at lovely Rachel Ward, a very young uh, Daryl Hannah, who's maybe got five lines in the whole film. Did um, I tell you about the time I met Daryl Hannah? I don't think you have. Is it an interesting story? We could use no. something interesting about now. No, but I did meet her once. It's oh, not an interesting nice. story. She was very nice. Okay. Yeah, she seems nice. Mm. Um, a very young Joey Pantoliano, Joey Pants friend of the show um and it was all directed by andrew davis who went on to do under siege and was oscar nominated for the fugitive so the final terror is on tubi it's a beautiful uh, cut of it at all it's about this group of young people who get stuck in the wilderness um and there's a crazy person trying to hack them down but it's all shot in a very big kind of cinematic way so it's called the final terror if you've got tubi give it a look 
I mean, everyone can have a tube. It's free. I know. That's the other thing. And I found some amazing stuff on there. I'm considering doing a, like a, a tubey deep dive segment every week just of all the stuff that I've been, been watching. I watched this other great film called Old Enough from 1984, this friendship story with two, two teenage girls in New York City. And it had, a, it had like a 28-year-old Danny Aiello in it, which was amazing to see. Wow. I know. I know. And they're all such great prints. Like, they've, they've obviously got them from DVD remasters or Blu-ray remasters. It was a, both of those films that were, were, were great sort of scratch-free copies. These earphones that I'm currently listening to the podcast through right now, yeah. only one of the ear has worked for, like, the last... How many episodes have we done now? Uh, 84 coming up. Yeah, something like that. Um, and so, like, every time we finish the podcast, I'm like, oh, I really need to replace these earphones. They're both working. I don't know what's going on, Simon. That's but anyway, amazing. That's neither here my, nor there. My clarity is pumping through the wax that's building up on your earphones. What have you been watching, Dan? Look, I we talked about The Sandman earlier. That's something that I tried watching. And I have to yeah. say, I've just never big into the comics. Like, I, there was something about the faux literary merit of those books. And, like, I'm not a big sort of mysticism, like, dream logic person at the yeah. best of times. And so the Sandman comics never really resonated with me. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to give the show a look. And it's fine. I just found it was just a little bit slow and a bit plodding. And it was kind of... So many things have been inspired by Sandman over the years that mm. when it comes time to do an adaptation of it, like I just kind of feel I've seen this before and it didn't really do much for me. That's the feeling I've got... Um I don't know. And Charles Dance chewing the scenery like he does an awful lot. It feels like this is just ticking a lot of boxes to be safe and be a worthy watch rather than sort of trying to push any boundaries like Gaiman probably did with the comic back in the day. So, yeah, I I got to the end of the first episode, realised I'd nodded off a bit in that episode, went back and watched that bit, nodded off again, and here we are. I'll never watch The Sandman again, but good luck to those fans of the comic book out there who've been waiting a long time for this. I hope it, hope it you know tickles your Sandman bone. Yeah, look, I mean, I can't imagine there's anyone really going to Neil Gaiman at this point looking for something new. <laughs> like, I kind of feel like he's an established writer. He's in his, like, late 50s, early 60s now. Like, kind of what we expect from Neil Gaiman's what we get. And, like, that's actually fine. Mm. Yeah. But, like, I just kind of, you know, there's right, other right. things I could be watching. And, yeah, mm. I mean, I was never quite under it, but, yeah. Uh, but in a similar sort of milieu... Uh, I've, <laughs> as I do every week, I've been watching the TV show Evil. And what I think is just kind of interesting and why I thought I'd talk about it this week is that this is a show where for the first season or two, they suddenly had storylines that kind of continued through the season. There were certainly elements of the show which they've revisited as time's gone on. But it's been interesting watching in the final, let's say, four episodes, this third season that's currently on, how much they really are reaching back through every thread that they've had and they're kind of really just narrowly just focusing at the end of this third season to really tell us what the show has been doing this entire time. And it's just fascinating to see a show that has been so um, obvious in a lot of its storytelling to suddenly just reveal, oh, wait, you thought we were obvious earlier. No, we were actually being really obvious. And it's kind of really just um, just focused really nicely as to what the show is. And I'm like, oh, okay, no, this actually makes all the sense. Like, I don't know how I hadn't really brought these pieces together up until now. You love this show. I think it's we have very talked good. about Evil more than any other show in the history of screen watching. Which and I'm one all day for. You will watch what it. we're here to do. One day you'll watch it, Simon. 
Yeah, I, like I said, I started on it season one and was completely on board and then just life took turns in different directions and never went back to it. But yeah, no, no, I'm absolutely on board with it. i got no trouble talking about it. It's, it Here, looks like a lot of fun. Here's my evidence that you're not fully on board with it. You took time <laughs> to deep dive on Tubi this week to watch the yeah. final terror. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I know. The, the list of things, and I, you should see my list on Tubi. It's like, it's big. It's a big, big list on Tubi. Um, yeah, size queen. <laughs> Okay, Simon, we're saving the date. What's going on? All right, saving the date. September 2, House of Hammer. Yes, it sounds scary, and I'm sure it will be. This is a three-part documentary series about Army Hammer, his dark predilections, and not only that, but also his family's long history of and dark past, the debauchery that the Hammer uh, name has um, cast in terms of uh, American society. It, debate, it debuts on the Discovery Plus channel, which is a US thing. Is it screening here in Australia, Dan? You'll know this sort of stuff. Uh, no, I don't believe so. Not yet. Okay, so watch out for that one called House of Hammer. Boy, has he fallen so far. The trailer is chilling, which you had on your Always Be Watching newsletter. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see it. Yeah, I don't think we get Discovery Plus in this country. I'm pretty sure we don't. Yeah. Hey, December 15, there is a film called Avatar, The Way of Water, which I believe debuts in Australian cinemas in 129 days' time. Yeah, I know you're counting down. If you, if you don't know Dan's <laughs> referring to his Twitter uh, uh, handle, he's changing it every day to count down towards Avatar The Way of Water, which I think is very cute. Look at you. It's like you're having a school diary and you're ticking off the pages. Yep. Uh, according to the notes <laughs> you've left here, we get it one day after Belgium and Sweden, the same day as Malaysia and Slovakia, and one day before the USA and UK. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's rolling out across like that week around the world. So that's going to be a big deal. And mark your diaries, July 21, 2023 is the confirmed date for Barbie, the film starring Margot Robert and Ryan Gosling, which we've mentioned previously on the podcast uh, and we'll probably mention again. It goes into US theatres July 21. I can't help but feel this film's going to be incredibly stupid. <laughs> I'm hoping so. Although it's got Noah Baumbach as one of the writers and it's directed by Greta Gerwig. You know, you know, they're funny people, but they're not exactly wacky and zany, are they? I mean, maybe I'm keen to see the take they, they have on it. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> this week in history, Simon, uh, on August 13, 19, I see the way that you've like allocated us to talk about specific yeah. things. I feel it so that I'm not going to just derail the second one here. But That's anyway, exactly right. August 13, 1981, apparently the last broadcast of the Waltons took place on CBS TV. And you'll be interested to know, Dan, that on August 14, 1967, celebrity hairdresser Vidal Sassoon cut actresses Mia, actress Mia Farrow's hair into her famous pixie cut, which changed the way women's hair were cut and helped make uh, Rosemary's Baby a huge, huge hit at the time. Yeah, I knew you were going to derail that, but um, I took it. I mean, I find it interesting you said that I'll be interested in that. So, frankly, you're going to hear from my lawyers. That's defamation. <laughs> August 15, 2019, Disney became the first studio to have five films earn over $1 billion. That's billion with a B. $1 billion each in one year. What might those five films be? If I was to say to you... Ooh, you good game. If you can name those four films... Two were MCU titles, yeah. two were live-action remakes, and one was the fourth sequel of something. What might they be? Okay. Uh, I mean, you're giving me some hints there. So you said yeah. that there's two are 
um, MCU films. Yep. I'm going to assume that they were... Hmm. My, okay, my assumption would automatically be that both of them are like the Avengers Endgame and the Avengers um, Infinity War. Nope. But that's not true because no. it's going to be uh, Infinity War and Captain America Civil War. Nope. No, no. You Ooh. were right with Endgame. One of them's Avengers Endgame. Uh, is it like a Spider-Man film maybe? But no. that's technically not a Disney Studio film, so that can't be right. No. Oh. And then you've got your two live-action remakes of Disney okay, animated well, properties. Okay, live-action remakes of 2019. That probably would have been... Uh, it's a tester. I mean, there was The Lion King, but that's not live-action. That's another one, yeah. Okay, we're considering that live-action? Sure. Sure, why not? Yeah. Photorealistic. Photo uh, so, so you've got Endgame and Lion King. Come on, people, phone in if you uh, know the answers, the numbers. Like maybe Cruella? No. Was that a 2020 release? 2019. Uh, no. Was it 2020 or 2019? But the, no, no, it was 2020. It was like post-pandemic because that was a film that came out via like Disney Plus as a like, pay-for add-on. So you've got, you've got Endgame. What would, what would have been the fourth sequel in a popular franchise that made that sort of money? Um, from Disney. Uh, what are four movies? Oh. It was a beautiful film. Arguably my favourite of the franchise. Oh, God. This is going to be something terrible, I can tell. Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't know, Simon. <laughs> Toy Story 4. Okay. Which I didn't made see. I keep forgetting there's a fourth one, to be honest. Made a lot of money. The other MCU title is Captain Marvel. Okay. I'm surprised made that made a billion. Bucks. Yeah, I'm surprised. Well, then there's Aladdin, which was the other live-action remake, and I'm surprised ah. that made a billion, too. So... There you go. That's the five films that made mucho, muchos. Yeah, I guess it's probably the Will Smith facts with that film. I hear it slaps. Yes, this <laughs> this was pre-slap. And on August 17, 1979, Monty Python's Life of Brian premiered in U.S. theatres to a rousing, raucous acclaim. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. <laughs> uh, Simon, you can start this one off. Sebastian Stan was born August 13, 1982. He, of course, went on to star in Pam and Tommy, one of the aforementioned MCU films. I can't remember which one it was. Oh, he was in um, The Gecko well, he- and the Flying Lizard or something, wasn't he? That's right. He was the Gecko. <laughs> yeah. Uh, August 14, 1945, the second best of the three amigos was born, one Steve Martin. Yes, interesting to read on your newsletter this week that he'll be retiring. Um, well, no, no, that's not strictly true. He says that he can't envision that he'll do anything. his retirement. He can't envision working again after murders in the building, which is, yeah. Um, yeah so he's saying that he won't be doing any movies or TV shows anymore, which I believe that. But he also yeah. says he won't do any cameos either, which I find, like, I mean, not that he's really done a lot of that, but like surely if Tina Fey called, he'd do something. Can't imagine a world without Steve Martin on screen. Um, August 15, 1990, Jennifer Lawrence was born, star of The Hunger Games um, and the wonderful film Joy. Don't know why it was called Joy. August 16, 1954, James Cameron, director of Avatar The Way of Water, which will be released into cinemas in 129 days' time. (laughs) That's exciting. Uh, And we do want to sign off by, of course, saying, well, I want to do it because she was such a huge influence on my life, the lovely Olivia Newton-John. Rest in peace. Um, My heart was a little bit broken this week. She was my high school crush. um, And to hear she's gone doesn't wipe away memories of Twister Fate, one of the worst movies ever made. But What about A Mum for Christmas? for Christmas yeah look you know you get past Greece she didn't have a a huge 
Xanadu. impact upon the world of cinema. I love Xanadu. Don't get me don't get me started on Xanadu. Oh, I've geez. spent my I'm... life defending that film. Um, but yes, rest in peace, Livy. Um, sorry that cancer was such a dick of a thing to you all those years, and and thank you for being who you were for all of us. Can I take conversation back to Steve Martin? Sure. Best Steve Martin film, go. Roxanne. Okay, that was mine as well. Folks, <laughs> thank you very much for listening to the screen watching. My name's Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. Start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Friday, you got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that week. Roxanne, I only saw for the first time, like maybe about three or four months ago. Wow, I went to a preview screening of it even before it was released, which was all those years ago, but and just fell in love with it and seen it so many times since. Um, but so many great films. Parenthood's another one I'd say up there as well. Um, read my words. <laughs> Read my words over at screen-space.net. Visit the Screen Watching Facebook page. Important you go to the Screen Watching YouTube channel. We have interviews up there with uh, Tyler Atkins, who directed the Australian film Bosch and Rocket, and Emma Holly Jones, who directed Mr. Malcolm's List, a wonderful British period drama. They're both up on our YouTube channel, or will be by the time this goes to where. Uh, and a uh, quick reminder... Get on over and buy your tickets for the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. We have lots of available seats and plenty of tickets to sell around the country. Go to the event site or Cinema Nova if you're in Melbourne. The mail, it's a mail plane, and you can tell because of the ball. Okay. Folks, <laughs> just don't know That's your three amigos. Hey, oh. it is getting late, isn't it? Follow screen watching via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now. Hit the follow button and... This podcast and all the magic within it will just flow into your eardrums. It's a good place for this magic to be. My favourite joke from Three Amigos is when he's up on top of the uh, wall there and he's going, look up here, look up here. Up here, hey, up here, guys, guys, crack, <laughs> crack. What's great is, do you remember there was that terrible, I think it was a DreamWorks animated film, Robots? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, There's yeah. a scene where one of the robots is trying to get the attention of the other ones, and he does the entire Three Amigos. Guys, <laughs> up here, up here, up here. <laughs> and I remember watching that in the theatre, and I was laughing and laughing and laughing and silence from the rest of that theatre. <laughs> but you know what the funny payoff was? Was that Chevy Chase then has to tap Martin Short on the shoulder and point up to get him to look up. He doesn't. <laughs> it had so many great jokes in it. The funniest so joke in that is just Martin Short, who it, it's like that sort of sequence where it's like at the end of the day and I've just kind of won everyone over. and Yeah. <laughs> Martin Short's there and he's telling stories about when he was uh, like a child actor. And the Nickelanders. Yeah, yeah. And he's just telling like these kids who are like listening to him, like deeply enraptured about like these really <laughs> terrible just Hollywood stories and like the magic of like it was just Hollywood wank. And, like, these kids are just watching him as though, like, you know, he's the most fascinating person in the world. It's great. It's like this little throwaway thing that only works because it's Martin Short. Or when they're walking across the desert and uh, they're running out of water and Chevy Chase is pouring water all over his And then he puts the lip balm on and offers them the lip balm. <laughs> I just like where he's smacking his lips. Anyway, guys, this has been Screen Watching. We'll be back with more Three Amigos Remembrances next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.